Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me in the studio today is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. And on the phone, we'll be hearing from Richard Lum, Head of Financial Services at Accenture, as well as James Schotter, our Frankfurt correspondent, and Ben McClanahan, our US Banking Editor. This week, we'll be discussing quite a lot around the issue of banking technology. Firstly, we'll talk to Accenture about a new study they've produced that shows how few tech experts there are on bank boards. We'll also hear about how John Cryan, the new co-head of Deutsche Bank, is expected to make an overhaul of its IT systems a priority for the German bank. Then we'll hear about how Royal Bank of Scotland has become the first bank to adopt Facebook at work. And finally, we'll switch from technology to the oil and gas sector, asking whether banks are ignoring a big potential problem of bad loans in the sector being caused by a drop in the oil price. So starting with bank technology. Joining me on the phone is Richard Lum, Head of Financial Services at Accenture, which has this week produced a bit of research into the issue of technology and expertise in technology and how much there is on the boards of the world's biggest banks. So, Richard, what did your research find? What we found is that bank boardrooms do in fact have a drastic lack of technology expertise. Looking globally, out of the top 108 banks that we looked at, only 6% of board members and 3% of chief executives have professional technology expertise. And in fact, one third of board members have no expertise at all. So um, we do believe there's a big need, actually, in today's world to staff up on the board with technology expertise. Technology seems to be becoming an increasingly important part of what banks do. I mean, it's always been a a pretty central part of it. But given the, the threats from all the new digital challenges, these fintech startups, the the threat of cybercrime, all the pressure from regulators on banks to be monitoring what their own employees are doing and who their customers are and all of this extra information they're expected to provide and monitor all the time. IT is is pretty mission critical, isn't it? It is. I mean, as you say, technology is evolving uh, very quickly in the sector and banks are facing a lot of new entrants, new challenges, the so-called digital disruptors particularly in lending and payments. I mean, if you think of some of the names like PayPal is long established, but more recent lending club, Apple Pay, Android Pay, Square, a lot of innovation on a day-by-day basis. So strategically, banks have been attacked in terms of their revenue base by these new technology companies. But to run a bank, you need a lot of technology. And cybercrime is a big issue today, but so is resilience, just keeping systems running in the banking industry has become a big issue because of the complexity of the systems that they have and the scale of systems that they have. So um, technology issue is increasingly a boardroom issue today. You said there's a large proportion of banks that don't have any tech expertise on their boards. How much, what sort of percentage of a boardroom do you think should be filled with tech experts? 
Well, we think what would probably be important is to have a technology subcommittee of the board rather than specify a specific number of directors. But a technology committee which is looking at the issue and advising the board in terms of how they should adapt and using independent technology experts when necessary. But generally, we just think there should be more technology expertise on boards than there are today. And why do you think banks have struggled to hire more non-executives, in particular from the tech sector, to join their boards? I've heard from some senior bank chairmen and, and executives who say they're trying to find people, but really struggling, I guess, partly just because really top people in the tech sector have perhaps got better things to do than sit on the board of a big bank. <laughs> I mean, it is difficult for me to comment on that as to why they are struggling I mean, I would say that technology is evolving very rapidly. So, you know, it's only in the last two to three years that cybercrime has become such a big issue. So the skills are in huge demand in the marketplace, not only in the banking industry, but across many industries. And of course, there's a lot of innovation going on. So entrepreneurs are moving into innovative and entrepreneurial new ventures rather than necessarily moving to sit on boards of established players. So I think just generally there is a skill shortage out there and the types of skills that are required are just changing really rapidly. Yeah, I think the rapid pace of change in technology is probably part of it, isn't it? That you haven't got the older generation of executives who are perhaps coming to the autumn of their careers who are then looking for non-executive seats and who still have that up-to-date technology knowledge. I think there's a couple of ways you could look at it. I mean, on the one hand, regarding the new digital entrants, I mean, if you look at most of these companies, they are run by very young entrepreneurs, certainly less than uh, age 40, sometimes around about age 30. So finding that type of expertise is very difficult. Mm. You've then got more traditional IT expertise, people who have built a career in the IT industry the last 30 years. And I think some of that expertise is what is required on boards, particularly when looking at issues of resilience simplification, the impact that regulations having on IT systems, and really how the bank just addresses technology in today's world. Yeah, I mean, HSBC have hired Safra Katz, the chief executive of Oracle, to its board, and Standard Chartered hired as their new chief financial officer last year, the CFO of Vodafone. Andy Halford. So there are signs that banks are pulling in more people from the tech sector, but I guess they've got a long way to go. That's right. I mean, they do have a long way to go. Those are good examples. I mean, I think Nationwide in the UK is another good example of a board which does have a technology committee with very experienced people on it. But I think my general message here is that across the world, banks need to step up significantly. The UK is perhaps one of the better countries in terms of representation, but still has a long way to go as well. Thanks very much, Richard. On the subject of banks and technology, one bank that is planning to increase the uh, technology expertise on its board is uh, Deutsche Bank and planning to promote Kim Hammonds, who it hired from Boeing a couple of years ago as chief information officer and is now being promoted to chief operating officer. And this is part of a broader shakeup at Deutsche Bank and a big focus on technology by the new co-chief executive, John Krein. And here to tell us all about this is James Schotter, our correspondent in Frankfurt. James, what are we expecting from Mr. Krein this week? Hi, Martin. Well, as you say, Deutsche announces the final details of its plan for the next five years on Thursday, and technology will definitely be a big part of that. 
it's been a problematic area for the bank in recent years. One example of how complex their system has become is that the bank has, for example, 100 different trade booking systems in London alone, which leads to a level of complexity which makes things like controls and so on hard harder than they might otherwise be. And you know, the complexity of Deutsche's systems has obviously contributed to problems such as their difficulty in retrieving data for regulators in the US and the stress test earlier this year. So that will definitely be part of what Mr. Cryan wants to do. He's already said that Henry Vachot, uh, his chief operating officer, will be in charge of a new digital banking project, which Deutsche hopes will come up with ideas that will benefit both its retail and investment banking operations. So it'll clearly be you know, a big focus of what Deutsche wants to improve on going forward. What but else is the uh, bank planning? I think there's more, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when Deutsche set out the outlines of its five-year plan in April, it has already explained that it plans to divest itself of PostBank, which is the post office bank that it currently owns. It's looking to find $3.5 billion in cost savings, and it intends to cut assets at its investment bank. But one thing that Deutsche didn't give then to the disappointment of investors was more detail to flesh out those outlines. So I think one thing people will be looking for very closely on Thursday is details of the timings of these cost cuts how quickly they'll be achieved, but also precisely what it means in terms of headcount reductions. Deutsche has a huge number of contractors, as well as you know a large level of full-time staff in comparison with rivals such as Credit Suisse and UBS. So I think on both those fronts, there could be reductions. Then there's also the question of its balance sheet. Mr. Klein has been very clear since taking over that he will be aggressive in dealing with assets which tie up balance sheets for the long term, particularly as you know, new capital regulations have made that a less attractive part of banking to be in. And then the other issue that's hanging over Deutsche at the moment is their plans for bonuses, which is another area where Mr. Kwan I think might be quite aggressive in terms of showing that he's serious about turning over a new leaf at Deutsche. Right. So it could be a very dramatic week for Deutsche Bank, Germany's biggest bank. Thanks very much for running us through all of that. Now over to Emma here in the studio to talk about how a new partnership between Royal Bank of Scotland and Facebook is going to see staff at the UK bank using the Facebook at Work system, the first bank to do this worldwide. It's unusual to see RBS on the front foot on a technology issue, I suppose. But in this case, Emma, tell us what this means for the state-controlled lender. RBS is indeed the first bank in the world to sign up to this Facebook service which is essentially a proprietary site for employees within a company. So unlike the personal Facebook site, this is a separate website or app on the mobile in which employees can converse, set up groups, set up meetings, set up events and communicate with each other. And the idea really is to sort of break down internal barriers, enhance efficient communication between anyone from the chief executive, Ross McEwen, to branch staff and back office workers, ultimately with a view to boosting productivity. RBS isn't the first company to do this, but it's certainly the first bank in the world to do this and the largest for Facebook at work with some 100,000 employees. I guess it indicates Facebook's interest in branching out from being a social media site mainly for consumers, for individuals, to a more corporate offering and perhaps even an interest in financial services from them. Exactly. Ultimately, this could lead on to banks and other financial services companies that employ this site as a way to offer services to consumers through Facebook. 
At this stage, though, RBS have not revealed any plans on this front, although they did confirm that this is something that they are exploring. So for Facebook, this is a way to diversify their business. They're bringing more corporates on board. But with RBS and with a number of other companies, it's currently free to use. So it's a free service that RBS are getting. If they decide to use other additional services within Facebook at work, then there'll be fees charged. But largely, it is a free service. Thanks very much for that, Emma. Switching from technology to the oil and gas sector, and in particular looking back at the third quarter earnings season, which US banks have recently finished updating us on, and Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, is here to talk about the exposure of the big banks to the oil and gas sector, which is an increasingly pressing question given the fact that the oil price has fallen more than 40% in the past year, now trading below $50 a barrel, and yet the financial sector sector doesn't seem to be hit by this in a particularly significant way. There don't seem to be large upticks in provisions. There don't seem to be a big rise in defaults. What's going on, Ben? Yeah, it is a bit of a mystery, as you point out. The crude price has fallen from 110 to, I think this morning, below 43. But the damage has not yet been reflected in, in banks' balance sheets. As you say, in the third quarter, there was um, some reserve building at some of the bigger banks exposed to energy. In particular, Wells Fargo, it made no reserve releases for the first time since the first quarter of 2010, which got a lot of analysts talking. Uh, City, too, has been building reserves for a few quarters now. In the first quarter, about 100 million, second quarter, 40, but in the third quarter, 140. So the pace is increasing. But as yet, there's no real sign that the banks are beginning to really suffer. Are regulators starting to turn the screw a little bit and put pressure on the banks to be a little bit more realistic in terms of either calling in some of these loans from companies which are really struggling or taking big provisions against them, enforcing on bad debts? What's the situation with the regulators? It's a tough one. I mean, you say realistic. I think um, the, the OCC, which watches most closely over this kind of thing, would like to consider itself as a conservative. And that is a clash between somebody who's a sort of neutral third party, has no real interest in keeping lots of these businesses going. But the banks do, of course. They want to get paid out 100 cents on a dollar, even if they go bust. So, yeah, there's talk um, among regulators that the banks need to sit down with clients and have a proper discussion about what happens if oil prices do stay at these levels. Um, to what extent asset sales can offset some of the pain? Can they adjust their capital structures? Can they issue equity? Can they swap assets? It's interesting that lots of the sort of vulture funds, that's a pejorative term, but they do tend to swoop in at the sign of trouble. Um, Lone Star, Apollo, Blackstone, they're beginning to congregate down in Houston and down in the big oil centers, looking for ways to relieve the banks of some of these troublesome assets. Right, but no real sign of any deals being done just yet. I'm sure there are, but there's nothing hugely public. There's been a couple of blow-ups. Of course, KKR's deal with a... It was invested in Samson Resources, which uh, a big client of its that went bust last month. I was speaking to one of the bankers there. They expect to get paid out because they're right at the top of the capital structure. They expect to get all their money back. But uh, yeah, I think uh, going forward, we will see more of these deals. We'll see bigger asset swaps. And surely it's about the length of time that the oil price stays at these kind of levels. If this lasts for another year or two, then we could see a lot more pain being expressed in the balance sheets of the banks, right? That's right. The first round effects of these energy companies, that, I mean, the energy services companies, um, Wells Fargo said, are beginning to suffer. But the second round effects on, on the broader oil-dependent communities, Wells was asked a lot of questions about. The other week when it presented its earnings, it talked about its mortgage book 
and it compared its mortgages in, in oil communities with mortgages against non-oil communities. And they said there's no real measurable differences yet in the portfolio performance. But uh, they, they said they're monitoring closely and, and they do expect to see some degradation, some correlated stress in communities dependent on oil and gas. And you mentioned Wells Fargo a couple of times there. I mean, who were the banks with the biggest exposure to the oil and gas yeah. sector? The banks that the FT tends to care about, the biggest banks amongst those, it's Wells. It's about 2% of the, the gross loans outstanding, so, so not huge. Even if they all go bust, Wells will be absolutely fine. But it is the second round effects that um, are the more significant for these big banks. And we're already seeing up in Canada, I know you've, you've spoken to RBC recently, that they're talking about difficulties in oil-dependent communities. Uh, Toronto Dominion Bank also told me about similar effects. But uh, amongst the big banks that the FT does write about a lot, it's Wells Fargo, it's City, it's JP Morgan. There are some other ones further down, uh, Comerica, based in Dallas. That's 8%. I think that's one of the biggest gross exposures. There's also BOK in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Whitney Bank in New Orleans. But these banks, we don't really write about so much. Yeah. I mean, RBC said they were stressing their oil and gas portfolio for oil prices going down as low as $35 a barrel and they would be fine. They'd be within their risk tolerance levels, as, as they put it. So not completely fine, but nothing to worry too much about. But I think the problem would be if we were still in that situation in two or three years' time, then they would definitely not be within their risk appetite zone. So that would be much more of a problem. It's when the big layoffs start to kick in as well, and unemployment and uh, mortgages, credit cards, auto loans, that they, they start to default all over the place. Okay. Thanks very much for that, Ben, on that uh, sobering you. note. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Richard, Emma, James and Ben for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. This week's Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. And t- Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Till next week, goodbye.